Good morning. I have um, way too many pages today. <laughs> this always happens when I want to talk about the hindrances because there's so many. <laughs> and um, usually three pages is plenty. There's seven. Doesn't bode well. <laughs> And um, I want to review <laughs> from yesterday a little bit. As I was thinking about the hindrances, um, and when I was sitting with you yesterday, at the end of the day, you guys were sitting. It was already so quiet in the zendo that I thought, "What do I have to talk about the hindrances for? You've clearly passed them by." <laughs> But it's kind of traditional on the second day to remind people of what obscures being present. Very common. Everybody has hindrances. So um, we should talk about them. We should familiarize ourselves with them. So, um, from yesterday, I uh, just wanted to review a little bit. And I wanted to review, I wanted to say something about RAIN, R-A-I-N, that probably most of you are also familiar with. Does anybody not know what I mean when I say RAIN? Oh, okay, okay, so I'll go over it. RAIN is basically, it's an acronym for the basic practice. Recognize what's there, be present. Um, Accept or acknowledge or um, allow what has arisen. Um, Investigate sensations in the body. You know this completely, just didn't know the word. And then um, no identification with whatever arose, stayed for a little bit as sensations in the body and passed through. And what, basically what I wanted to remind people was, was that um, if you do steps one, two, and three thoroughly, you know, really stay with the sensations in the body until they're really all gone, then the fourth one happens. The fourth one is kind of automatic. Thank you for both. So I just wanted to make sure that people were doing it completely and not kind of doing it in order to get rid of something or in order to basically get rid of something, you know, hurry the process along. And it doesn't work if you hurry the process along. 
So from yesterday, you know, to review your intention, <clears throat> to clarify your attitude, going from grasping, wanting things to be better, to curiosity. To make a balanced effort that you can sustain. And fundamentally, that effort is to let go over and over and over and over again. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to surrender. You know, in Islam, that's their whole thing, I think. I mean, I don't know very much about it, but I think surrender is their big thing. Surrender to the will of God. That's totally Buddhist. You know? Surrender to the mystery, to the, not even to the mystery, surrender to life, the energy of life as it, as it creates us, and as Norman would say, as we create and are created by life. Surrender to that, to the truth of how things have come to be. Or and we would say suchness, surrender to suchness. I think that's the name of the, isn't it, the Tagata? Is that what that means, thusness? No. I have no idea. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> the thus come one, thank you. Or in Judaism, you know, I am that I am. It's the same thing. It's the same revelation for everybody. Anyway, but we resist. We resist our will, you know, our, you know, you can even say that our, this is, I am so not getting to the end of this. (laughs) (laughs) You can even say that the self is will, control, you know, will, grasping is will, I want this, aversion is will, I don't want that. You know, the self is this will control, you know, that's what it can, well, at some point that will, that, that need to control, that personal will drops away. And what, when it drops away, what's left is a, a uh, stillness from which activity flows. So, you know, you surrender to it now or later, but it's inevitable. <laughs> so this dropping away of, of control, you know, of will, is a kind of, is a dying. You know, it's a dying, it's an identity, another one of the identities that dies. And that's what we want to do over and over again. You know, this identity dies, drops away. That identity drops away. The holding to this identity, the holding to knowing something, identity drops away. The holding to I'm a helper drops away. The holding to the identity of 
whatever it is, whatever idea drops away. These are deaths, dyings of me, of me's. Anyway, what prevents us from doing that? What That happens in the present moment, has to happen in the present moment. There is no moment but the present moment. There is no present moment, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what prevents us from being present are the hindrances. And the hindrances everybody has. We all have hindrances. Um, and we need to be familiar with them. Because if we're not familiar with them, they run our lives from most of the time from below because the hindrances like are a kind of a paintbrush on perception they they are they can be a tone of the way we approach daily life and if i name the hindrances you'll you'll see right away the hindrances are greed or desire it's traditionally sensual desire aversion or ill will hatred Resistance. Fear goes under that one. It's very interesting that they put fear under that one. Restlessness, you know, extra energy that, you know, almost always turns into thought, you know, yammering thought. Sloth and torpor, which for Soto Zen you have to really be careful of. No, I'm not kidding. And um, doubt, skeptical doubt. Those are the hindrances. And you can see, if you look and are honest with yourself, that probably, you know, one or two of them you major in. You know, it's your fallback default. It's your default way of being in the world. And, interestingly enough, they're self-fulfilling. I'm not exactly sure how this works, psychologically. But you can see it happen. You know, so if you have a tone of aversion, or even let's just say you got off up on the wrong side of the bed and, and you're just not having a good day and the way you want to get through the world is by just closing, you know, closing down and pushing everything away. You know, no one will smile at you that day. You know, no one will. I mean, maybe somebody, but will take pity. But you know, if you are in the world open and smiling, that's what you'll receive in return. And if you're in the world, you know, with impatience and aversion, people will stay away. It'll be self-fulfilling. So the hindrances have this way of creeping into your, <coughs> our lives, <coughs> excuse me, subtly. <coughs> Pardon me. Or not so subtly.
So, um, <coughs> I'm going to read you how the Buddha spoke about them. But he spoke about them almost always in the context of being able to concentrate enough. So in the traditional um, presentation of practice, you know, it's calming the mind, shamatha, and insight, vipassana. And in order to calm the mind, you have to understand the precepts and work with them and, and be uh, clear of them. So that's in the context that Buddha talked about them, was in that context. So here's what he said. One whose heart is overwhelmed by unrestrained covetousness will do what he should not do and neglect what he ought to do. And through that, his good name and his happiness will come to ruin. One whose heart is overwhelmed by ill will, by sloth, torpor, and so on, by restlessness and remorse, by skeptical doubt, will do what she should not do and neglect what she ought to do. And through that, her good name and her happiness will come to ruin. But if a noble disciple has seen these five hindrances as defilements of the mind, he will give them up. And doing so, he is regarded as one of great wisdom, of abundant wisdom, clear vision, well endowed with wisdom. This is called endowment with wisdom. So we're encouraged to familiarize ourselves with them to not be fooled by them, to recognize them and to work with them. The word for the translation of hindrance in ancient tongue, because I said that because I'm not sure if it's Pali or Sanskrit, but it's ancient. It's actually to cover up. So if you think about the hindrances as covering up something, I think you'll be very interested in them because they hide us from what is underneath. The self, the little self, the sweet little tricky little self is hiding something from us. So, for example, I've said over and over again, you know, underneath anger almost always is hurt. So anger is the hindrance, covering up, obscuring, not allowing us to see anger, uh, not hurt, because hurt is much more difficult to see. And in fact, hurt is, in a certain kind of way, strangely, more easily transformed in a way, more thoroughly the dying of the self happens if you transform hurt rather than anger, because anger is up here. It's a hindrance, obscuring what is more efficacious to work with. So the hindrances are very costly.
So they skew our perception because they're self-fulfilling. They obscure what we really need to work with. They stop us from being present. And if you behave from the hindrances, they are hurtful. And when we sit, one of the great things about sitting in meditation (laughs) is that when you do, when you act from the hindrances during a retreat, it's even more painful than when you're doing in daily life, because in daily life you can distract yourself after doing something unskillful. But in retreat, you can't. If you do something unskillful during retreat, it's painful. So it's one of the things that we're trained in during retreat, that we can begin to be comfortable with things that are uncomfortable, that we can actually stay with the discomfort of, let's say, making a mistake and being embarrassed, rather than slipping into sloth and falling asleep. We learn during retreat as we allow ourselves to be present, that we can actually manage to be uncomfortable, and it's not uh, destabilizing. It's an extremely helpful skill to have, to be able to be still in the midst of discomfort. So, restlessness. Restlessness is just extra energy. And like I just said, most often restlessness just pops up into the mind and you're just thinking. You just cannot stop thinking. It's actually, um, you know, there are stages. At first when the mind goes thinking, 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 we're just totally bought into it. And we run, you know, we run away with it and we're gone for a certain amount of time. But if we have if we develop a mind that doesn't get caught and swings away with that kind of chattering mind, it becomes just annoying. (laughs) Because it's really clear that you have no control over it at all. So it's kind of like annoying. There's a real part where it just gets terribly annoying. But then something happens that's kind of interesting that's a good thing. We get bored with it. So first we're kind of run away with it, and then we kind of get annoyed with it. Then we just sit there annoyed, you know. And then that annoyance kind of turns in, because you've heard the same thing a hundred thousand times. You're no good. You're stupid. You're okay. You know, I, I get it. <laughs> I give up. I'm stupid. <laughs> Fine, let's move on. <laughs> and you become bored. And that, that phase is really good because it means that you're not giving energy to this mind anymore. You just sit there and you let it do whatever it's going to do, but you're not caught by it. It's a very, very good place to be, to just be bored with it. <laughs> 
So if you find your mind going like a ping-pong ball, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, the antidote usually recommended is to widen the mind. Like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, if you put your put a ping-pong ball in a small box, it'll go like that. Bing, 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 bing. But if you put it in a very large pasture, actually, he was talking about, then it slows down, you know, ping, ping, ping. So it's recommended a wider box. And to do that, often um, what's helpful is listening, because listening widens the mind. If that doesn't work, then it's good, you know, you can go outside and run up and down the steps for 20 minutes and just use up the energy, you know. You can run up and down the steps if sloth is your your hindrance also, because with sloth, you want to raise energy. This is why it's important in Soto Zen to recognize this particular hindrance, because when we say to do, you know, shikantaza, and the instruction is to just sit, sometimes you can sit, even your body is straight, you have good posture, you're sitting there, everything's calm, it's almost pleasant, but it's a little foggy, it's a little dull. And people can sit that way for years and think they're doing shikantaza. But it's not. It's actually the hindrance of sloth and torpor. So we have to be very alert. The natural mind is bright. It's alert. That's what shikantaza is sitting. It's an alert, present mind. It's not just pleasant and foggy. So if you find yourself that that's what's happening to you, you have to raise energy. And one of the ways of raising energy is to be meticulous in your concentration. Because real concentration raises energy. It takes a lot of energy to really concentrate. It raises energy. You can do visualization. See when you're sitting if you can actually visualize the Buddha on the altar in detail in detail, and that will raise energy. Open your eyes. Don't sit with closed eyes. Yes? a terrific point. That's something that I have total confidence in you, that you will figure that out. Okay? Because you're right. Um, You want to make sure that you don't suppress anything. Okay? Because that's the self being willful. 
controlling, wanting to create a mind state. Okay. With thoughts that are um, ongoing, just blabberings, you can gently label them without judgment. Thank you very much. Let them go and return. And just see if that's what you're doing. Okay. If there's a thought that's more insistent, it might mean that you haven't really processed it thoroughly, physically in the body, before it leaves. This is something in, in your own meditation that you need to just be um, skillful about. And you will become skillful about it. Just be really alert. Are you, and, and, and if you think you're suppressing it, you are. Okay? Okay? So just be honest with yourself and just uh, play with that a little bit and see what actually is happening. You can figure it out. Especially if you brought it up, you're watching. Right? So that's terrific. I want to say something about um, aversion and resistance to life a little bit because I think it's really interesting and important. One way that helps us learn to surrender to life as it is is to know that the present moment actually couldn't be any other way. And I know this is kind of an odd thing to say because we think we make choices. And in some way we do. But in another way, we actually don't. The whole entire universe has come together in just this way to produce this moment exactly the way it is. Flowers on the altar, candle burning, people sitting on chairs, people sitting on cushions, wall being white, my talking even right now. The entire universe from the beginning of the Big Bang had to be exactly the way it was to produce this moment. So, do we actually think (laughs) that resisting what is right now is going to work in any way? No. In case you're doubting. (laughs) No. So before anything else, that's why surrender is so important. Before anything else, before we think we're going to fix anything, before we change anything, before we think we can control anything, which is not a good idea anyway, we just have to open and surrender to the present moment exactly the way it has come to be. Yes. Oh, (laughs) that's a very good question. Um, It turns out that we have to make effort anyway. We can imagine for now, okay? Just imagine that I knew this was going to be a problem. (laughs) Just imagine that you are making effort for the moment, okay? Because you are. Because the causes and conditions that brought you to this moment have you also making effort.
this is tangential, I shouldn't even go here, but we, you may, see, the reason why you think you can make effort is because you think we are you making effort, right? But if you understand that actually we are just this bunch of conditions of life, you know, and there isn't really a core in there willing something, then you can just relax and make effort as, the, as life making effort right now. It's not you making effort. Life is making effort. Life is appearing as you making effort at the moment. And we can enjoy that. Then we can play, you know. It's a mystery. So, antidotes for, um, where am I? Did I talk about resistance, aversion? No, I haven't yet, right? Oh, anger. Resistance to life. So one of the ways that resistance of life comes to be in terms of the hindrances is anger. Aversion, anger. Judgment. Fear. Small contracting world. Small world. There's nothing wrong with any of these hindrances. There's nothing wrong with anger because it is the way it's come to be in this moment. But we need to really address it because anger uh, hurts the person who's getting angry. And if you let it out in that way, is often very unskillful. So you never want to act from a place of anger. But sitting meditation is a very... (laughs) Sitting meditation is a very good place to address anger. You could actually allow yourself to be angry, to, to allow the energy that we call anger and the sensations that we call anger to be there. Let yourself have a heart that's pumping and heat coming up and contracting. Let it be there and watch yourself if your mind is strong enough not to be sucked into the reasons why it's right for you to be angry. (laughs) Then you're lost, right? But if you're really able to have a stable mind and you let the sensations of anger come up, you can watch it arise, you can let it be there, and you can watch it go. And you can begin to know that you, with all the hindrances, even with greed and sensual desire, you can let it come up and be there, watch the sensations, and then watch them go. And then you have a choice. I could say a lot about anger, but um, I think that's enough. Here are the antidotes for anger. Cultivating loving kindness as an antidote for ill will. Don't ever act 
When you're angry, wait, wait, go to the closet, and then process it, and then act. Seek friends who are not hostile or angry. These are the classic antidotes. Especially in meditation, don't move and experience the energy and the sensations of anger arise and dissolve. Here's another one. You can also go to refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You can ask for help. You can know that there are lots of people just like you working with the same thing. And there's a lot of support to help you through this hindrance. I have two more to do. Not bad. So the next one is greed or traditionally sensual desire. The, um, when we do, someday we will do a ceremony called the Sagaki or Sajiki ceremony, which is we invite hungry ghosts into the room and we feed them. The picture of a hungry ghost is somebody with a big belly and a big head <laughs> and a very narrow neck because it's, it's endless, right? It never, you never get enough. You can never get enough through there. It's a great picture because as we all know that when you fulfill a desire, the next thing that comes up is the next desire. So it's endless. But you know, there's nothing wrong with being pleasant, feeling pleasant. There's nothing wrong with it. I never am against, I'll never say anything against feeling good. It's a question of holding, grasping. That's the problem. And the reason why it's a problem is because it reinforces the mind of grasping. So that's, it's really a problem. And it's also (laughs) completely a delusion because you can't really grasp onto anything because everything is really impermanent and changing. You know, that's why sometimes we get into a relationship and we think the person is going to be just that way forever. And they're not. They can't be. They change constantly. So if, you know, you get in a relationship and you think that uh, this is perfect the way it is now and it's always going to be like that, it doesn't happen because people change at different rates and sometimes they change away, you know. And sometimes you choose to turn away, and maybe that's better. You know? So if we really deeply understand that 
life is transient, evanescent, ungraspable, impermanent. It helps us, it releases us from the idea that we can actually be satisfied by grabbing on and keeping things this way. It's really interesting watching myself because as I get older, I think it's common for people who get older that, you know, you try to um, create, because you've lived for some amount of years and you know what you like, you know, and you think you know what's going to make you safe and take care of you when you're uh, incompetent, you know, when you turn into a baby and are dependent again. You don't turn into a baby, but you're dependent again. And so you do, you have these thoughts of, you know, you try to make your life stable and safe and secure and nested and have around you the things that are going to make you comfortable. It's totally, I'm sure it's completely normal. I can watch myself do that. I'm not being very successful. <laughs> Which is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. Because otherwise when you get older, your life gets small. Very small. Anyway, it's not possible. To control, you know, life, to make it just this way, it's going to stay that way. Anyway, the last one is doubt. And, um, It's actually insidious doubt. And this one is also something that, for those of you who have doubt, and all of us do sometime, very important to pay attention to it because it undercuts your ability to practice. You know, you have doubt in your own ability. You have doubt in the teacher. You have doubt in the practice at all. very, uh, that's why it's called insidious doubt, because it gets in there and undermines everything. So it's important not to get discouraged, because it's called practice for a reason. You have to do this over and over and over again before you train the mind, you get good at it, you have a mind that's stable enough to focus and look deeply at our situation. It takes a while. And the other thing about doubt that's really nasty <laughs> is that it's really subtle. Very often it's subtle because it doesn't really appear in the body. It's a mental thing. It's kind of just a, a like a, uh, a malaise or an ennui or, a, you know, a, a, a subtle kind of draining of energy. It can appear that way. Anyway, so if you feel like you have doubt, the, the classic thing to do is to remember your intention, remember why you're practicing, 
come to the Sangha, you know, notice that everybody else is doing it as well, talk to the teacher, and in some way, in some vague kind of way, um, see if you can raise just a teeny weeny bit of trust. Just the smallest amount will do. Trust in the Buddha. Trust that your life brought you here to practice. And remember that people have been doing this for thousands of years. It's doable. Everybody can do this. So, I did, I got through seven pages. So along with what we talked about yesterday, with about effort, sustainable effort, remembering your intention, remembering to let go of whatever arises. Matter of fact, if that's all you do this whole week, that would be plenty. Just whatever arises, do rain one, two, three, thoroughly and then just let go. Just surrender to the process. Come back over and over and over again to the present moment. And throw away whatever ideas arise about what you're doing. Trust life to carry you through. It will. There's an intelligence about who we are, that wants to wake up. Just allow that. Trust yourself. Trust your experience. Trust your intention. And we'll keep going together. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.